This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today, if you're a guest, we're we're totally glad that you were here and hope you'll feel right at home. We're going to teach the Bible, so what we say will be relevant to you, uh, to all of us. But this is going to be today, our family meeting on Wednesday night, and next Sunday is a little bit of family time for us as a church, where we're wanting to focus uh, some specific application uh, kind of on where we are. We're at a unique time in our church's history. And so as I shared, uh, you heard in the announcements that next week we, we break ground uh, on our property in Frisco Square, which is a really big deal. Uh, the Lord provided that land for free to us. He gave us that. So it's really a calling to be there. And it means so much. It's not really about a building. I know it's easy to say, I thought about a building. Uh, it's really not. It's about what the Lord is doing in us and the opportunities before us to uh, communicate the gospel to people who need Jesus. So we're wanting to focus. I want to just pause a little bit and think about uh, what's in front of us so that we make the most of this. I mean, I hope it's a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing uh, for us, you know, uh, at least for this generation. If the next generation wants to sell that building and move out to the country, that's fine, but uh, wait till we all died, those of us who are in this generation, uh, because we've uh, invested a lot in that land, that property. The land was free, we haven't invested a dime, but uh, just in terms of uh, preparing for that. So I want to pause and uh, think about this a little bit today. Uh, I was thinking yesterday, uh, I've been teaching the Word essentially weekly since 1998, uh, for seven years to youth, and then since 95 uh, as a Sunday morning uh, preacher kind of guy. So that's, uh, I, I don't know uh, how many years that is, 27 maybe, something like that. Uh, well, thank you, yeah. Um, and I have never taught from the book of Numbers. And I was thinking about it, I don't think I've ever in my life heard a sermon from the book of Numbers, except I know I heard a sermon growing up about the 12 spies, and they, none of them believed, and Joshua and Caleb did. I have heard a sermon on that at some point in my life. But other than that, I've never even heard a sermon from this book. And uh, so it's a rather unusual place. And as I read the passage, you're going to think it's a very unusual place. But stick with me. I believe this ties in to where we are as a people. So I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to read the first part. Uh, I'm going to summarize the middle part, and then I'm going to read the last part. So beginning in verse 1, Numbers 1.1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers, and these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizer, the son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Jerushaddai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathanael, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. And from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. 
From Dan, Ahiser, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pegiel, the son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Now I'm going to summarize. He's going to go through each of the tribes, and I'm just going to read the number because it's a repeated thing. They're generations, head by head, every male. So it's important, but it's the same thing repeated. And for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, just skip over that. So verse 23, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Verse 25, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Verse 27, those listed from the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Verse 29, those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Verse 31, those listed from the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. 33, those listed from the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Verse 35, those listed from the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. 37, those listed from the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Verse 39, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Verse 41, those listed from the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Verse 43, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These, verse 44, these are those who were listed, who Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel. Twelve men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel, by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every passage of Scripture and for every word of the Bible and for the and for the truth revealed in it. And as we look at this passage today, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would give us a, a vision. I pray that you would give us faith. I pray that you'd give us anticipation and expectation. And I pray that you would uh, build bridges of connection between us, those who are in Christ, those who are a part of your church, and those who are numbered in Israel at this season of their life. So speak to us today. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after that reading, perhaps uh, you're thinking, well, I can see why in 27 years you never taught on the book of Numbers. But the book of Numbers has a very bad name. I would actually like to teach the whole book at some time. I've been studying it in 2015. And um, it has is, it is really uh, affected me in a number of ways. And, and the book, I think, gets, like I said, gets a bad rap. Because really, the first verse gives us the context. The first verse gives us the key to understanding the whole book. And the way you understand the book of Numbers is to understand where it happens in its historical context. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai 
in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So one year after the people of Israel are delivered from, uh, one year and two months after they come out of Egypt, this is what we find. Now let's back up just a little bit to understand this story. In the book of Genesis, God comes to one guy named Abram, later changes his name to Abraham, and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Picks one guy, I'm going to make a nation, I'm going to give you a land, and he says, in essence, through you, all the nations will be saved through Christ who will come through your line. So he picks one guy. That guy, uh, Abram, starts having kids, and the generations, there's several generations, and then this family of people are taken captive in Egypt, and they become slaves. And they're there for many, many years, several centuries. They are in Egypt as slaves. Then God raises up a guy named Moses, and he delivers the people out of Egypt. And they're brought out of Egypt. And then one year after they come to Egypt, we get this this census. Now, what's happened before they came out of Egypt, and what happens, the next thing that happens is they, they go to Sinai, Mount Sinai, and you know that scene, the Ten Commandments. They receive the law. They find out they're supposed to build a tabernacle, which is a portable church. It's a portable temple where God will reside and uh, where sacrifices will be made. So they build the tabernacle. So they have the law. They build the tabernacle. And one month after the tabernacle is what we read right here. So they are on their way to the promised land. God has brought them out of Egypt. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's taking them to Canaan, the promised land, where they will receive their inheritance. And now they are in, verse 1, the wilderness of Sinai. They are after the deliverance and before the promised land. They are in the wilderness. They are living between the times of being delivered and receiving the fulfillment of promise. And so the book of Numbers shows the ups and downs of the people because they wrestled to believe God and trust him to get them into the promised land. They worship other idols. They have attempted coups of authority. They grumble and complain. All kinds of things happen. The ground opens up and swallows a bunch of them at one point. So it is, it is a story of ups and downs. They're wrestling with their faith. One minute they trust God. The next minute they are grumbling and complaining. And it is easy for Israel in the book of Numbers to forget the plot line of their lives. Here's the plot line. You have been delivered, and I am taking you into the promised land. And so they live in that wilderness in between. They are easy, easily forget what God has done for them, and they forget where he's taking them. I mean, does that sound familiar or what? That's the image of the Christian. That's the whole Christian life. We live between deliverance. Jesus Christ died, resurrected for our sins, and we believe in him. But we're not in the promised land yet. The ultimate promised land is the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. And so our life is this wilderness. It is that Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And so we live day to day wrestling for faith, remembering that God did more than delivered us from Egypt. He delivered us from the slavery of sin. God has saved us. God has given us new life. God is carrying us to his purposes. God will bring us into his promised eternal land one day. But in the meantime, we're so prone to grumbling and complaining and chasing other gods. Life in the wilderness is the whole picture of the Christian life between deliverance and between the promised land. And so the book of Numbers, it'd be hard to think of a more relevant picture of us in the Christian life. 
And so that's kind of the background of what happens. And the book starts with a census. Verse 2 says, take a census of all the congregation. God tells Moses, take a census, clans, uh, uh, people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the numbers of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all who are able to go to war. So he is calling him to take a census of all the people, to count those who are 20 years old and up, to see who can go to war because Canaan is not going to say, here come, this land is for you. They're going to have to battle for the land, but God has provided them victory and promise to give them the land. So here are several things that we learn from this census and from this chapter in Numbers 1. And then I'm going to go back and make clear, I hope, make clear how I think this speaks volumes to us today. Number one with first thing we learn is God is faithful. God takes a census so that they will see that God has been faithful. You see, there's 600,000 people in the army, and by ancient Near East standards, that is huge. It is so massive. It is so massive that some scholars say, well, this must just be like hyperbole or symbolic numbers because this is huge. It is a huge number. And so when they can, I don't believe that, but I'm saying that's the reaction. I believe it is this many people, but that's the reaction from some who say this is just too big. But it it reminds the people that God has kept his word. God has been faithful. See, all the people, they hear the census, there's 600,000 of us. This all started with one guy, likely a moon worshiper. He was a polytheist for sure, named Abram. And from that one guy, God has built this massive people. He's given us a land and he's given us the wherewithal, the tools, the people to take the land that he has given us. That that they would stand back in awe and say, this is incredible what God has done. They are on the verge of receiving the land. Really, the promise made to Abram in Genesis 12 is, is partially fulfilled here. He said, I will make you a nation, and I will give you a land. Well, they are a nation. If there's 600,000 warriors, there's probably 2 million-plus people. That's a significant nation. So God has made them a nation, and they are on the verge of taking the land. It's significant. God has been faithful to them. Now, to us, I read all that, and it just looks like numbers, uh, because we don't know how to interpret that. It's like if you know nothing about baseball, certainly there's some people like that here today. You don't have to raise your hand, because we would disrespect you tremendously, but no, no, just kidding. No, just kidding. Um, But if you know nothing about baseball, and I just start flashing up numbers, we're going to talk about ERA, and I start flashing up ERA. You don't know if one is a good ERA, or nine is a good ERA. One is phenomenal, nine is not good, so by the way. But if I just start, you know, ERA, if I start putting slugging percentages and on-base percentages up, you're like, what are these numbers? They mean nothing. Or if, you are, if you're not an accountant, maybe you look at a spreadsheet and your eyes just glaze over, oh man. But if you know how to interpret that data, it can tell you everything about the financial health of a company, for instance, by reading the financial statements of a company. So the average person, lay person, looks like, ah, it just looks like I just get a headache looking at it. But if you know what you're looking for, it means something. And so here, if we knew 
what this number meant, this large group, it speaks, it shouts that God is faithful, that he's not only delivered them from slavery, but even when he, they were slaves, what God was doing was building an army. Even under slavery, God was blessing them to multiply so they would have what they needed at their time to take Canaan. Number two, God's people are unified. The census is a reminder that they are all joined together as a family. Did you notice as we went through that, he didn't say, just go count everybody and bring me a number. Oh no, it's way more detailed than that. We've got to get one representative of each tribe. And then that guy will get all the people counted in his tribe. And then we'll have this very detailed telling of it. We're not even going to say we counted them all at 600. We're going to get detailed. Here's how many this tribe had. Here's how many this tribe had for a whole chapter such that I skipped over it. We're getting all that detail. Why? Because it's showing us that everyone traces their, their participation in the people of God back to Jacob's sons. Everybody is tied to one of the sons. Everybody is tied to the family. They are a unified, they're not just 600,000 warriors. They're a unified group of tribes together to work together now to obtain the promised land. They are companies of people. He divides it that way, that they are there to be counted by the whole congregation, to be counted by clans, by father's houses. So there is this, you are, you are associated with a family. You're associated with a father's house. You're associated with a clan and you're associated with a tribe. So there is this one family. What is God doing here? God is organizing his people in the wilderness. They live in the wilderness, but he's organizing them for mission. He's organizing them for a purpose. They were just slaves, and they've been brought out. And 14 months later, he's now, he's given them the law, how they are to worship him and live for him. He's given them the tabernacle so that he is in their midst. And now he's organizing them. One author said, this is a transition. Numbers one is a transition between a band of freed but unorganized slaves into an organized and holy military camp preparing for battle. What's going on in chapter one? It's an unorganized group of slaves that have been freed a year and two months later that are now being organized into a holy military camp. Listen to what he says. Order, leadership, assignment of duties, calculations of available resources, organization of the community, and future planning are all made possible by the census taking. This isn't just a random list of numbers. This is an ordering and a structuring of leadership so that they can do what God has called them to do. They are unified as God's family. They are organized for God's mission. That's what's happening in this chapter. They're headed to the promised land. They are unified as God's family. They are organized for God's mission. I mean, you could probably see where I'm going with some of this. That's, I can't wait. I got a lot to say at the end of the application, but I'm going to say something right now. That's the season we're in. We are not, we are not in redemptive history like they were. They are, they are going to take a land. We're not going to kill anybody over in Frisco Square to take a land. That is not what we're doing. We're not kicking the pagans out. We want to be in their midst. That's the New Testament. We don't live as a nation separated from the people. We live amidst the people. 
and filled with his spirit as a gospel witness. So the church is every tongue, tribe, nation, and race scattered throughout the world, not in an enclave or a nation like Israel was, but, but spread out for gospel witness. So we're not, do, we're not participating in redemptive history. Uh, our land and their land don't mean the same thing at all. So I'm not saying anything like that. It just happens to be lands involved in their story and ours. But I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we're in a season where God is unifying us as his family and organizing us for his mission. That's what we're entering into the next nine months or so. For us as a church and as a people, we are called to unify, to build together, to build deeper, and we're organizing, uh, organizing duties, organizing responsibilities, calling everybody to be all in so that we can fulfill God's mission, which isn't taking a holy land, but which is being his representatives 24-7, wherever he's called us to be, to be his, his uh, mouthpiece at the heart of our city to proclaim the good news to those many people who need Jesus. So we, too, are organizing for mission. We, too, are unifying his family. Number three, every person counts. I just said they're unified by tribe, but we, this is what I love. When he goes through every passage, the passages that I just skipped over, it does say, like, for instance, let's just pick a group. Um, uh, let's see. The, well, I'll just start, I'll start with uh, the, the, the first one, which was Reuben. It starts with uh, the generations by their clans, their father's houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male. So it's the people of Reuben, but they're listed head by head. That means we're counting heads. That means individuals are being counted. It's not just how many people total or how many tribes or how many in each tribe, but it is head by head. Verse 2, that was the command. Count them head by by head. So Numbers is very much a book concerned with God's purposes, God's mission for his people, uh, God's glory, but each person is counted who will be in the battle because each person counts. Each person counted because each person counts. We don't just get a big picture. We get head by head, person by person. Every person counts. Number four, the people are committed. The count is, in essence, a demonstration of who's in, who is going to war. We need to find out who's going to take the hill with us, how many people are able to go to war with us. There are different kinds of censuses in the Bible, or sensi, I don't know, censuses, I guess. There are different kinds of censuses in the Bible. Jesus is born when a census is being taken, for instance. Uh, So different kinds of censuses. Uh, in Exodus 38, a year before what we're reading, a year ago they had a count, but it was for finances. They counted everybody, and each person counted was required to give half a shekel. I don't know how much that is in today's dollars. I didn't look it up. But each person gave half a shekel, and half of those half a shekels were all contributed. That bought the supplies for the tabernacle. So it was a building fund. So everybody was, in essence, taxed for the building fund. Uh, we don't have that application. We won't be taxing people here and taking a census. It's free will, voluntary grace. But uh, that's n- not in Israel. You were taxed. And so the count, the census was for a building fund for the tabernacle. But this census is different. There's no money involved. This census is to find out, 
Are they ready for war? Who do they have that can participate in the war? What size army do they have? And as they count each person, each person is in essence saying, I'm in. I mean, the, the census is, are you in or are you out? Are you part of the people of God or aren't you? Are you in this group, this age range, male 20 and up? If so, are you in? You're in the war. You know, you're, you're with God's people. So the census is not only just random numbers for taxation, or we need to find out how many roads do we need to build, and how many schools do we need to build in the Holy Land, and you know, it's, they're not talking about that. They're talking about going to war. And so they're finding out who can we count on, who can we literally count in. Number five, the people are blessed. The count recognizes that each person belongs to God's family, and there is no greater blessing imaginable. See, under the old covenant in Israel, the only way to relate to God, the only way to worship Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God we're studying in Genesis 1 who spoke and created everything, the only way to relate to him is to be part of a tribe, a clan, a family. It was a network, a family of tribes, clans, that you had to be part of that. So as we're counting, we're counting people who are profoundly blessed because they know the God of the universe and they are numbered among his people. This is the only way. There's only one place to worship the true God at this point in salvation history. And it's through the sacrifice at the tabernacle, which is in the center of the tribes. This is the only way. And if you wanted to be part of the people of God, some did. When Israel came out of Egypt, there were foreigners that joined. There were foreigners that converted. There were foreigners that became part of Israel. And what they had to do was males had to be circumcised, and you had to connect to a family. You had to connect to a tribe. So if you wanted to know God, you had to be part of the family of God, Israel. So this is a profound blessing. Of all the nations of the world, this is God's people. These are God's people. Not only were they blessed to know God, which is the greatest blessing, but there was also a secondary tangible blessing that when they get into the promised land, everyone, every tribe will be given a land and every family will be given a a plot of land. The blessing will be for every family. And in Deuteronomy 6, it describes the blessing this way. You will receive houses you did not build, cisterns you did not fill, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. God says, this is grace. I'm bringing you into a land and I'm going to give you all this stuff. It's grace. These are blessed people. They're numbering off by tribe. They're about to receive their inheritance. Number six, God is in the center. In I, uh, the next, what we didn't read was verses 47 to the end of the chapter. It's about the Levites. The Levites aren't going to war. The Levites are the guys that take care of the temple. Uh, well, they do, but at this point, it's a tabernacle. So this is a mobile people, maybe 2 million people. Uh, it's a 2 million person mobile camp out. And then that's what it is. I mean, this, this absolutely blows away the Jimmy Buffett festival that will be held over here where, where we look, go, well, that's huge. There's three blocks of campers. Uh, you know, or four blocks of, uh, of people re- trying to relive their glory years or something like that. But uh, at some point, I just want to walk out there with a sign, it's over. Just, okay, it's over. We can't travel around and party like we're 18. Okay, it's over. Uh, but anyway, you may be going, so don't let me offend you. Be, have, have fun, be safe, okay? Be wise, be safe, be godly. But, so, um, 
Let's see, where was I? Oh, it's a, it's a two million person traveling camping trip. And what they do is the Levites are responsible for this detailed taking down of the tent of worship. I mean, you've got to carry certain things on poles. Certain things have to be folded and carried in a certain order. So he's saying that they're not going to go to war. They are going to take care of the tent. And if we went further, like into chapter 2, what we'd find out is that the tribes are all organized around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it's a picture that God is in the center. So when they travel, Judah will be in the first. There's a, there's a ranking of where everybody is. Judah's going to lead the way. Uh, and that's the primary tribe. They're going to lead the way. And in the center, all these tribes, there's some in front, some in back, some on either side. The Levites ride around. There's Levites that guard that if you try to break in the tabernacle, they execute you. If you try to break in, they will kill you, literally. And, uh, and I guess if you do break in, then God will kill you probably if you got in. But uh, they, they, So it's all organized. And at the center of it all, even when they're marching, at the center is the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it's this picture. We didn't read it. It's chapter 2. But it's this picture that God is at the center. He's wanting his people to know the armies of God who have been preserved through slavery, delivered from slavery, surrounded in the center is God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. They are moving forward on God's mission with God's blessing by God's grace to receive the inheritance that lies before them. God is in the center. So how does this apply to us? I already said, I already tried to build all the, I uh, hope, I uh, hope, responsible theological uh, dissimilarities between us and them because there's plenty of dissimilarity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant Christian and the, 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 the whole nation of Israel in this local church. There are dissimilarities, but there are continuities and similarities as well. And we could see them by just running down this list because we stand here today and we say, number one, God is faithful. If you know Jesus Christ today, God has been faithful, and he's done something far more extraordinary for you than he did for Israel. They could only imagine what their deliverance pointed towards, and it pointed towards the deliverance in Jesus Christ that we've received. If you're a Christian, God has been faithful to take you from death to life, to take you from Egypt um, into the place where he is present with you. We can look back on the cross and resurrection and say, look what God has done for us. He's forgiven our sins. He's given us new life. He's joined us to his people. He's given us a purpose. And it's not just two million people-ish. It is people uh, from every nation, tribe, tongue throughout history. The promise to Abram has been fulfilled that it's, it's more than the stars of the sky. It's, it's an innumerable amount of followers of Jesus Christ. And he's been faithful to our church as well. Not only has he saved us, he's called us to be a mouthpiece, a gospel witness for him, and he has given us a primo tool to do it. He's giving us a location. He's given us a resource through his people. He's plopping us down in the midst of a lot of people and a lot of activity so that we can represent him, that we can proclaim him. God has been faithful. Next week, when a shovel goes into the ground to symbolically say the building project is on, when those shovels hit the ground and pull out, you know, put up, pull out a chunk of dirt and uh, there's a camera flashing for the moment, I hope that it is with crystal clear 
gratitude that every one of us gather for that moment saying, God has been faithful. We are standing on land that before the foundation of the world, the Lord called us to be on to preach the gospel. We are standing on land that was named the name of this church prior to this church existing uh, when the city named those streets. We, we stand there and say, God has been faithful. He's done a lot more than just give us a location. He saved us. That's the greatest faithfulness. But he's given us a spot to announce the gospel for generations. He's done for us what we never could do ourselves. God has been faithful to us. We recognize that at this season. God's people are unified. We are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We're not just attached to a, a, a human nation and a blood family. We are attached to a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. And while that is true theologically, we could all get behind that. We could look at the household of God and talk about how we're a family. We could look at some verses where Paul calls everybody brother and sister. We could look at all that and say, hey, he's the father, we're the children, we're the family. We could go over all that, and we would all nod our head and agree theologically. But I just want to say it's been our experience in these days. I don't know what these days are, six months, one year, something like that. In these days, there's been a reunifying in our church. There's been a gathering. Uh, There's been something of a scattering and a gathering, and there's been a unifying work in our church for the season where we are. And we aren't in the promised land. That's heaven for us. We aren't in heaven. So there's still, uh, we still got people with, uh, who, you know, who aren't maybe all unified together perfectly like we will be in heaven um, because we're humans. So I'm not saying that we're living in some kind of paradise as a people, as a church, but I am saying that we're taking a huge step of faith next week and the Lord has brought a reasonable, sweet unity in our church. And it is a gift is an absolute gift of God. Ephesians 4.2 says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the, I'm sorry, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I, I don't know why this is, but I've just heard story after story of churches that enter building projects and the whole church just gets disunified. There's fights, people freaking out. Well, I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe there's high opinions about carpet color. I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't know, but th- that's what I've heard. Oh, you've got a building project? Wow, well, that's, you know what happens during building projects? Uh, no, I'm naive. I don't know what happens. <laughs> this thing just happened really fast and nothing bad happened. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know what that is. I mean, I suppose it could be the enemy trying to hinder the people of God. Uh, I, I, pro, I suppose it could be a project driven by selfish ambition and because there was pride, things... I don't know. It could be the church trying to make a name for themselves and the Lord resists that. I, I don't know. But all I know is that we're human and the enemy is real and the opportunity is great and these words... May, may the Lord burn these in our hearts with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God's people in Numbers 1 are unified, and they do not stay that way. If you read the whole book, they don't. And my prayer is that God would unify us for his cause and would draw us closer. And the only way that happens is if I humble myself and if I'm patient with others and if I 
if I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, God has provided a unity in Christ. Am I eager to maintain that? Am I doing all that I can to maintain unity with my brothers and sisters around me? So we are unified as a people. Uh, you know, we really are, as far as I know. Um, but, but I also know unity is fragile. It's fragile. It's delicate. It breaks easily among sinful people like me and like you. So God's people are, God's been faithful to us. God's people are unified. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to replay what these people we just counted. I don't want to be like them uh, because they didn't fare so well. But, uh, but we want to maintain unity. Number three, every person counts. Just as each person is counted for the cause here, so in the New Testament, each person is counted. In 1 Corinthians 12, um, and 13, Paul talks about how each person is like a part of a body. He uses the metaphor of like a human body. He says Jesus is the head and we're the body. And so each person is vital. You know, one part, the eye is not more important than the ear, more important than the foot. Every part is necessary. Every part counts. Here we just have a number, a number of warriors, but they're counted head by head. In the New Testament, we get a picture where each person is functioning for the body to be healthy. Every person counts in the body. Now, everybody counts in war. Everybody counts. But I think the illustration in the New Testament is much more vital. I mean, it's a metaphor in the New Testament. It's literal here. But in the New Testament, I think it's more vital. You cut off your arm. Uh, you cut off your foot. Your knee stops working. Uh, when things like this start happening, your heart stops beating. I mean, things like this, you can't breathe. The lungs don't function. The lungs are unhealthy. When parts of the body cease to function, it's serious. That's Paul's point. God's gifted all, and all are to be respected and valued. One can't look down on the other, and, and every part totally counts. It's said, I don't know, this is just a figure that's thrown out there. I don't think there's any statistical data. But it said oftentimes in churches, about 20% of the people do about 80% of the work. In volunteer organizations, usually it's about one in five fully own it, and that's where the work gets done in a volunteer organization like the church. I mean, can you imagine if they came back with a count and said, we're going to war, there's 600,000 people, there's 600,000 men that are ready and have said, I'm in to go to war. However, only 20%, only about 120,000 of them said they're really going to be available. Um... I mean, there's a lot that kids are really busy this time of year, and uh, they're, they're just not available. And they got a lot going on. I mean, don't you know the guy's a farmer? He's got to grow food. If it goes off to war, what's going to happen? How are people going to eat? Can you imagine if they said, we got 600,000, but only 120 are really participating. They're really all in. The other 80%, it's just not the right time. No, that's not what happened. We're counting head by head because everyone has a part to play. And that is true for us as a church. If you're a guest, if you are new, this may not be the place where you're called to play a part. I hope so. But God may be calling you to another church. I don't know. Um, so if you're new, maybe you're trying to figure out where you fit, what church or whatever. Uh, but if you are part of this church, God's calling us to everyone play our part. Everyone, every person matters. I mean, I've often wondered if that's one of the big lessons that we're going to experience in the next year. That I've, I've wondered, I've never thought of it as about a building. I've said that for years. It's all about a people. And uh, so I've wondered if the Lord's really wanting to tool us and prepare us uh, or even maybe retool us, I should say, and prepare us 
uh, so that everybody finds a responsible place of service in the church. And that if we moved and didn't add a person, the process would have been healthy for the church because everyone would have come to a place of ownership, preparing for what was in front of them. We're preparing for company. God will decide how much company and who, who's the company and all that kind of stuff. But we are preparing for company. And when we do so, every person matters. I, I'm going to be talking about this next few weeks, but uh, I'm going to be talking about a little bit at family meeting. But out on our Connect Center, or if you go out the door to the left, the Connect Center there, there's a card. It's called a volunteer card. And you can, if, you're, if you don't have a place of participation and service, you're in this church, but you say, you know, I, I want to be counted in in a responsible way. I don't want to say I'm ready for war, but I'm unavailable. Uh, I want to say I'm, I'm an active member of the service. Uh, then you can put a check on one of these places or several of these places, and someone will contact you. There's even one on the back called Other, which I love it. I love an entrepreneurial church where you can just create your own role. <laughs> okay, y'all need help in children's ministry and, and in music and in outreach. Hey, I got my own idea about what I can do. Well, put it on there. We'll give it a thought, and we'll see. Uh, maybe you'll create a whole new ministry between now and next spring when we move in. I don't know. So we're open. We, we'd prefer if you could pick one of the places we need help. Uh, and we, we like have some dishes that need to be done, some meals that need to be cooked, and some things like that. We need some, uh, that's a metaphor. We need the house prepared for company. Uh, but if you have some idea about something you'd like to do, put it on there. We, maybe, maybe that'll become a new ministry. We're, we're all for that. Uh, so every person counts. Number, number four, uh, the people are committed. The people are committed. Over the next nine months, uh, I think we're going to be boldly at various times. I'm doing it today. But we're going to be boldly calling people to participation, unapologetically. Just saying, hey, uh, we've got to have all hands on deck. We've got to have all the body functioning. We've got some eyes that aren't seeing, some ears that aren't hearing, some knees that aren't bending. We need you in the body functioning so that we'll be healthy and be able to fulfill what God's calling us to do. Um, and if you are newer and you're, you're wondering, man, I want to, if this is where God's calling you, I want to challenge you to, to put down some roots and say, yeah, this is where I belong. We just did a new members class. We'll be presenting those people in the not too distant future to you as new church members, those who are going to join. We'll probably do another new members class this summer just to give people an opportunity to say, okay, I want to find out what this is about so that I can make an intelligent and spirit led decision if this is where I belong or not. But if it is count me in, I want to take ownership count me in. We're not going to do a census, an official census, but we are going to say, raise your hand and say, I'm in tangibly by your participation. Are you in? Are you saying, count me in? Uh, I'm reading a wonderful commentary on the book of Numbers. It's probably edited sermons, but it's by an Old Testament scholar named Ian Duguid, who's actually preached in this church before in our early years. Uh, This is a little bit of a lengthy reading from his commentary, but I think it's worth it. It's rare. A commentary is a book written by a scholar who, you know, explains words and context and history verse by verse. So it's like the toolbox in some ways for a preacher. It's the tools in the box, one of the tools you use. So I I use commentaries regularly, uh, but it's rare that I read anything like what I'm about to read you in a commentary. This is what he says about the census and how it applies in the church. He says, in our modern world, we live very disconnected lives in which it's easy for us to become fragmented individuals, only loosely connected to other people. You see exactly the same problem in the church. People float from one fellowship to the next, loosely connecting with those who attend there, 
hanging around the fringes, but never really coming in and being committed. Many today don't want to stand up and be counted as part of any particular church with the obligations and the benefits that come with it. One of the attractions of worshiping at a megachurch is that you can be anonymous, slipping in and out unobserved. I would want to add, there are plenty of people at megachurches that are very involved serving the purposes of God, so I wouldn't want to dismiss the very fruitful ministry of megachurches. However, his point's accurate. The larger the context, the easier it is to be anonymous if that's what you want to be. Um, The vision of the counted people of God in Numbers 1 challenges this aspect of our society. The church's motto is not, brethren, hang loose. We are a family of insiders, people who have made a commitment to one another and a commitment to this particular expression of God's people with all its faults and foibles and quirks. That's what being family is. That is not to say there are never legitimate reasons for leaving a church and joining another. Certainly not. We may need to leave a church if we discover that it is built on significantly flawed theological foundations, or that the gospel is not being faithfully preached in a way that feeds our souls, or that we cannot trust those in leadership to shepherd our souls faithfully. But we should only leave in order to find a place where we can truly cleave. Our goal must always be to find an expression of the family of God where we can fit and commit. The inheritance of the saints towards which we press is not a vision of myself and Jesus sitting down at a table for two. It is a vision of the people of God gathered together to feast with him. That is our equivalent of the inheritance of the promised land that God's Old Testament people were pressing towards. What we press towards is not, is not an individual heavenly cottage in a clearing in the forest, but rather a place in the midst of the city of God surrounded by his people, worshiping together before his throne. Now, if this is what heaven is, and if we're truly excited about that prospect, then its realization must also be something for which we strive while on earth. That is why church membership is an important step to take. It is the equivalent of standing up and being counted in the census. When you become a member of a local fellowship, you're saying to them, you can count me in. You can count on my contributing my resources to the community of believers. And I'd like you to count me in when you think about the flock you are watching over. You are saying that you are going to contribute as much as you are able to the work of ministry in that place, both in terms of financial support and using your own personal spiritual gifts to edify and build up that particular expression of Christ's body. You are saying that you are joining up with the battalion of Christ's army in the spiritual warfare that engages all of us, young and old, men and women. You're saying, I'm going to fight alongside this family wrestling together in prayer, reaching out together with the good news, tending the wounded with love and care, sounding the trumpet of God's greatness together with our worship. God's people still need to stand up and be counted. There's not one in a thousand commentaries that write like that, by the way. I wish they were. I couldn't say that better, which is why I read it. There is a commitment. There is a commitment of God's people. And we also invite you to participate financially. We've been doing this for years. Every October, we do a pledge for uh, funding our building. And it's not like we're home free. In many ways, we're, we're just beginning with the breaking of ground. And if you haven't participated, you can. We have these cards, which are our commitment cards. We do them in October, but we're exactly six months in. Like this week will be six months, so we're midway through our commitments. 
uh, to give, and it's all explained in this card. But if you haven't participated, you're new and you want to, I encourage you to say, count me in. I am in this, what God is doing in this people. And I'm contributing to this project. If you go out the door to the left, you can pick up a card. And we're going to ask that even the next two weeks, you consider filling one of these out and dropping it in the offering basket. And then if you do that, you'll kind of be caught up with everybody else. We'll do it in October for another year. Uh, But this is for right now. So you can do that. Maybe you've been standing on the sidelines saying, well, I don't know, someday maybe, yeah, well, it's not someday maybe, it's breaking ground next week. So now would be the time to say, if you've been waiting and you're part of this church, now would be the time to invest uh, for the glory of God. And we'll talk about this a little bit on Wednesday, but money received between now and, say, January is really significant. Uh, because it allows us to know on some parts the scope of what we can build. There are certain things about the building that we are deciding on mid-project based on how much money we we have. Uh, Not like a roof or air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, bring your umbrella. There wasn't enough money in the Generations Fund. We couldn't get that roof. Uh, So it's not like that. (laughs) It's some other stuff um, that we could or could not. So, And then also at the end of this building project, that's when... Uh, we, we really know more about what our, our permanent costs will be. So the more that we're able to pay, really even over the next three years, the more we're able to pay, then the less will be our mortgage in the long term. We'll explain that on Wednesday. Number five, the people are blessed. There's no greater privilege than knowing Jesus and being a part of his family. So we, in the same way, we're really far more blessed. We're experiencing the blessings they could only dream of because we know Christ and we're part of his church and we're being placed... Uh, you know, location to strategically reach as many people as possible and send out church plants. That's our goal has always been to be a church planting church. So we're going to land at a home and we're going to plant churches by God's grace. That's our dream. That's what we feel like he's called us to do, uh, to declare the gospel um, to people who are coming in. We are in an environment that is blowing up. This area is, it's blowing up right now. I mean, it is arguably, I, I think arguably, uh, square mile per square mile, it'd be harder to find a place that has more development in the U.S. than where we are. More development means more people. More people means more lost souls. More lost souls means more gospel opportunity to take Jesus to people that need him. So I'm all for church plants and churches building in dying areas and in s- stable areas. We need churches in all those kind of areas. But in a booming area, it means new people which means opportunity to take the gospel. We are blessed with the opportunity that's in front of us. Lastly, God is at the center of his people. He's at, he's at our center. We're building around him. doesn't mean that we move and his presence will be greater than it is here. Something like that. He doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells among people. But it does mean that we will be uh, in a location where we can uh, bear his testimony in a more public fashion with more opportunity, unified as God's family, organized for God's mission. So this is a time, these two weeks, to pause and say, Lord, what are you doing in our midst? What are you calling me to? What are you calling us to as a family? What do you have in front of us? Um, How can we prepare? And we're going to be coming to you with some ways that we can prepare as we organize for mission, as we invest for mission, as we build together. But it starts by saying, count me in. I'm going to end on a down note and then bring it right back up, okay? This is tragic because everyone you just read, except for Caleb and Joshua, everyone that we just read of, head by head, 600,000 people, none of them made it into the promised land. That, That was God's plan. 
God's plan was 600,000 people, we took the promised land. But that's not what happened. You see, the census you just read, it was 600,000 grumblers, 600,000 complainers, 600,000 rebels, 600,000 idolaters. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. And it's one of the most tragic stories in Scripture. They didn't receive what God had for them. They missed their calling. They missed their moment. They missed what God, because they didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. They complained about the food that he provided. They complained about Moses and all of his leadership. They wanted to go back to Egypt. It was much better being in slavery, they said. So they, they loved the world. They wanted the world. They, they chased other gods rather than trusting the Lord. And the Lord did not. He waited until they all died. And so rather than being in the wilderness a little bit and then moving in, they were in the wilderness 40 years. And in chapter 26, we get a new census of the next generation. The first 25 chapters is about what happens to this failed group of people who didn't know their time. And then we get the census of the next group, and it doesn't tell us what happened. We've got to read elsewhere in the Bible to find out they went in. It just prepares them to go in, but they don't go in. So the narrative of the book is like this. It leaves you with, well, here's a failed generation. Here's another generation. What happened? It leaves this open-ended question. It leaves this open-ended question about, do we, it puts it on me. Do I trust God? Do we trust God? Will we obey God as he leads us on our journey in this life? Will we identify with his people? Will we find our spot in his family? Will we be unified with his people? Will we be grateful and celebrating the good news? Will we stand up and say, count me in? That's where the book leaves us. It shows the failed generation, and it, sh- it doesn't tell us how the other one fares. It calls us to, to commit and serve among God's people, to live a life that counts. They're counted, but their life didn't count. They're counted at the beginning, but they missed their calling. They missed God's purposes. They missed what he had in front of them. And so it throws out the numbers. The book of Numbers throws out a challenge to the reader and says, will you trust Christ or will you bow to your own idols and your own preferences and your own desires and your own agendas like they did. That's what the book calls us to. And so God, I think, is laying in front of us in the coming months to be formed and fashioned and organized and built and counted and, and say, and, and count me in. You can count on me. I love the words, all the count that goes with this. Count me in. To live a life that counts when we look at Christ and what he's done for us and his calling on his people. He has won the victory. He is, will lead us into our promised land, which is the eternal heavens and earth. But right now we're in the wilderness until he returns. And wilderness people are called to celebrate the grace of God, the deliverance out of Egypt, and to walk faithfully with their God as a people, the faithful God walking together in unity, every part counted, every part doing its part, God in the center of his people, moving along with his mission, which is not to take a physical land, but to take the good news wherever we are and then beyond the nations, to take the good news 
to those who need him. And it all starts with these guys, man by man, head by head, counted in for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who say, count me in. We, we want to be a people who say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given your life for us, that you have won our deliverance out of Egypt, and that you have guaranteed with promise that you will come back for us and that we will receive not a geographical land only in this world, but a new earth and a new heavens and a forgiveness of sins with your people for eternity, Lord. And we just pray as we are in that in-between time, between deliverance, between the resurrection and the second, our resurrection, between your first coming and your second coming, between deliverance and promise, we just pray for grace to live with the people of God in the wilderness, Lord. And we just pray that we bear great fruit as we are between these two times. And we pray that as we are a people called on a mission to introduce other people to the new heavens and the new earth, the Jesus who gives eternal life, as we are called to bring other people along on this journey to see them delivered from their sin and promised eternal life for you. We pray that you would just give us great grace, great focus, great vision, great investment, great service for your glory, Lord. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that we're a part of your people. Thank you for what this passage teaches us about that. Thank you for the profound privilege of being a part of the church of Jesus Christ spread all over this planet and throughout the ages, those who call on your name. So we simply pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk with you and to experience your grace, your favor. Lord, we pray that Wednesday night would be a great night moving forward. We pray that next Sunday would be a glorious memory for all of us. And we pray that, Lord, while, while we watch a building go up, that what, what, what we're most in awe of is the hand of God building a people around the gospel. Lord, build us, we pray challenge us, shape us, count us, organize us, deploy us for your purposes, we pray. Lord, we want to be able to pray, here we are, send us. Give us the heart to pray that prayer. We want to say, count me in for whatever's needed. We want to have the heart to pray that prayer. We want to say, we will follow you, Lord Jesus, wherever you call us. We want to have the heart to pray that prayer. So help us, Lord, to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.